They had staff in a truck outside the gate. My guys would have run the truck through the fence. Who cares about the truck or the fence? Get the pumps operating. So what I want Congress to know is that they wouldn't be where they're sitting now if it weren't for local election officials. And we need to be protected. Our lives are being threatened. They're coming to our home, threatened to blow up our block. They threaten our children. I can completely understand, you know, the situation that she is in. Compound that with the largeness of the Olympics and everything else going on in her life and in her past. Not enough people are talking about with the Larry Nassar situation. I just think she couldn't do it. You're listening to Pod Suey, the week's top stories served a la carte. Subscribe at thegreatvoice.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Simone Biles shocked the Tokyo Olympics pulling out of both team competition and the all-around final after a shaky performance on the vault Tuesday night, saying she needs to focus on her mental health. Jason Ovetsky, a sports performance and psychology coach from Champion Mindset Group, joins Steve Courtney and the Mitch Album crew to give some insight into the pressure high-level athletes face and just how damaging it can be. I think what we need to do uh, is really clarify pressure and you know what she's dealing with and what all those other athletes that you mentioned are dealing with. And pressure is essentially three things. You know, you're doing something that is really important that you care about. The outcomes are, are significantly unknown. And on top of that, you're going to be judged. And, and that's just for all of us every day. And then you 10X that because this is the Olympics and it's Simone Biles. And when you are over-focusing on all those unknown issues, uh, worrying so much what others think and, and say about you behind your back and on media and things like that and how important that situation is, your brain goes into you know, overload and it produces chemicals that uh, mix with the adrenaline. You know, you go into that fight, flight, or freeze type of situation, and you can't move the way you like to, and therefore you lose your confidence. And I think that's what happened to Simone recently there. And and in her situation, if she can't move the right way, she could have some significant bodily harm and and also obviously letting her team down as well. You know, it's interesting in the gymnastics world, uh, apparently, doctor, it's really not all that uncommon, the situation that Simone came across. They they have a term for it. It's called the twisties. And that is when you can't meet the expectation of your performance, you become somewhat disoriented and you really are not sure exactly what it is you're supposed to do. Although you've been doing this for a long, long time. Reading about this, Doc, I kind of make the analogy with a pilot who's flying at night with no uh, gauges and you lose track of whether or not you're looking at the sky, the water, what the heck's going on. It's, it's just a sad state of affairs. The question becomes, how easily is it treated? It's very difficult. And, uh, you know, any athletes out there know or play baseball or golf, you know, understand the situation with the yips or in baseball we call Ugh. it the thing where, you know, you've been throwing the ball back to the pitcher as a catcher your whole life, and all of a sudden you can't get it there. You spike it into the ground or all of a sudden the golf club feels like a foreign object in your hand. You just don't know. And But – in this situation, you know, she's in the air, like you said, like a pilot is. And so there's some dire potential consequences if you're not sure what you're doing. So I can completely understand, you know, the situation that she is in. And the treatment for it is really difficult. I mean, I've worked with a lot of athletes that have had the throwing yips and golfers that get the yips with putting or, or the shanks, you know, uh, with wedges and things like that. 
And one of the first things we do, honestly, is we take some time off, which I think they tried to do in a way. You know, they gave her a couple of days to kind of let things settle down. And then, then we start back with some basic fundamentals and we kind of incrementally build up some of the confidence. And then we start adding pressure to this situation with uh, some like self-competition. And then we start having people watch to incorporate more pressure until the athlete starts to feel a little bit more comfortable. And, and I'm assuming with all the resources that they have there, they tried that. Uh, but at some point, when you compound that with the largeness of the Olympics and everything else going on in her life and in her past as well, which I think not enough people are talking about with the Larry Nassar situation, I just think she couldn't do it. Sue McCormick, CEO of the Great Lakes Water Authority, retired on Wednesday in the midst of an internal investigation in multiple lawsuits due to widespread flooding after heavy rainfall in recent weeks. Macomb County Public Works Commissioner Candace Miller released a statement saying Sue McCormick did the right thing by stepping down and that she anticipates more failings on the part of the Water Authority will be discovered as the investigation moves forward. Candace Miller spoke with Chris Renwick. So Sue McCormick said that she, when she testified to the, or, or spoke to the city council, she mentioned that she was unaware of the power outage at the at the major pump station ahead of the June rainstorms. Then um, she said that that information was not reported to the higher ups at the GLWA. What what do you want to see happen here uh, for for something like this to be prevented in the future? What what needs to change there? That's astounding. That is the most astounding thing that they had this pump station knowing that we were going to have this enormous rain event that apparently some, as they're saying here, reporting, I guess the independent investigation will tell us exactly, but for whatever reason, the power had been cut to the Prude station. It operates in concert with the Connor Creek pump station. Two days, now I'm hearing that maybe it was four days in advance of this storm, no power, and the higher-ups did not know. I mean, look, (laughs) anybody in any organization can tell you that having that kind of lack of communication before something that could be an emergency happens is very, very poor management, very poor management. So you just can't have that. I mean, you know, the, the day after I, I was hearing things like, well, because of the power outage at Connor Creek, you know, some of their workers that were trying to get in because the pumps, the electric went off, they had a power shortage or whatever. And they did the uh, emergency generators didn't go on automatically and, uh, you know, I, I guess they didn't have enough staff there and they didn't have an electrician or they didn't have someone to flip the switch. They had staff in a truck outside the gate, which electric gate. So now they can't get through the gate. Let me just tell you what, Chris, my guys would have run the truck through the fence. Who cares about the truck or the fence? Get the pumps operating. Seriously, some of this stuff you just think, you know, you don't have to be. <laughs> you know, True. have a master's degree to figure that out. Are you kidding? Yeah. Let's, and, let's and look, get real and, here. Sure. No, I, I understand that. And, oh. and I want to re- re- reference something uh, in your statement that was issued earlier today. You talked about the opportunity that the that the GLWA has now to to conduct that nationwide search. And I want to just kind of be blunt with you here. Do, do you think that Suma Cormick was right for that job and do you think that they have the ability here to upgrade at that position well you know i don't know whether she was right or not you know the great lakes water authority was put together during the bankruptcy it's a, it's a, it, it came out of the bankruptcy of the city of detroit so you know the the makeup of the board is people uh, a couple of representatives from detroit you have one from uh, macomb one from oakland one from wayne county 
uh, and now there's one from Flint uh, also. And so, um, you know, they selected her five years ago or whenever this thing first started. And, uh, you know, she's got a lot of good qualities, and she, I think she did a lot of good things. But listen, you, <laughs> I, you know, something happened that was just so egregious here that it, it can't be tolerated. As you say, it was devastating for folks. Thousands of basements that flooded, you know, and, and we in Macomb County, you know, you're probably thinking, what does she care? She's up in Macomb County. They didn't flood. Well, we could have. The surging Delta variant of the COVID-19 virus has caused the Center for Disease Control to once again revise their stance on masking up. Earlier this week, the CDC recommended that people who live in an area of high community transmission wear a mask indoors even if they've been vaccinated. So why should the vaccinated be forced to take precautions to protect folks who refuse to get the vaccine in the first place? And why do the guidances keep changing? Guy Gordon asked Dr. Matthew Sims, infectious disease expert at Beaumont Health. You are right. The biggest problem is the unvaccinated people. However, and again, remember how they worded this, in areas of high transmission where it's spreading more. Therefore, as it's spreading more, even the vaccinated people are at higher risk than they would be at a low rate, right? So, so do we know is, at what point is that? high transmission, we really need to cut, you know, do everything we can to cut it down. So that term high transmission can be, uh, I guess, defined any number of different ways. I mean, as I said, yeah, looking at the CDC's transmissibility numbers, Michigan is in a really good place where most of the mitten is moderate. A few cases are, uh, you know, a few counties are low. You know, we are. And, and so I don't think that the first part, the part about, um, you know, everybody masking indoors applies right now to most places in Michigan. The school part would, because that's really recognizing that children in school age are mostly not vaccinated still. Um, yeah. But the the other part I don't think is going to apply here. But there are parts of Missouri and California and Colorado and many other states where it's out of control again. And mm-hmm. this is recognizing oh. that in those areas, even though the vaccine gives you good protection, and it does, you're right, 88%. That's, you know, a reasonably close number. You know, again, the studies vary a little bit, but I've heard 82, I've heard 88, um, and then 94% against hospitalization. Great. These are great numbers. These are numbers that, we, you know, we would be super happy with with a normal vaccine. But a normal vaccine doesn't have to put up with a ever-changing pandemic. And this is mm-hmm. why you get that feeling like they, they keep doing it about face, they keep moving the goalposts. It's not them, it's the virus keeps changing and how it's acting changing, and they have to respond to the virus changing. I understand, but we haven't seen the death rate go up. Hospitalizations are, while some are going up, it's it's only in a few areas where they are unmanageable. I wanted you to get, to get your reaction to this quote that came from the Wall Street Journal, which said some in the administration and outside public health experts have said they were concerned that revising the masking guidelines could sow doubt among the vaccinated about the efficacy of the vaccines. You know, it all depends on how people will process information, but are we undermining our effort to get to the unvaccinated? Isn't this a situation where they're saying, well, it's not going to help me from breakthrough uh, infection anyway, then by God, I'm not going to get it. Yeah, the message should be that go get vaccinated because if we have more and more people vaccinated, we will have less and less of these areas that are high transmission. 
Detroit City Clerk Janice Winfrey was called in front of a U.S. House panel this week to discuss increased attacks on election officials in the past year. Winfrey went on WJR Late Mornings with Kevin Dietz to discuss threats she has faced outside her own home since the 2020 election and what she told Congress about it. So what I want Congress to know is that, um, you know, our government is elected by our citizens and and voting is crucial. And they wouldn't be where they're sitting now if it weren't for local election officials. And we need to be protected. Our lives are being threatened. They're coming to our homes. They're, uh, uh, you know, calling us names, threatening to blow up our blocks and, 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 and blow up where we live. They, they threaten uh, children, uh, our children, and the like. And, and they should know that when they consider bills, when they consider and have discussions on the subversion of elections and the process. And so I wanted them to know that uh, I would ask that they consider making these kinds of offenses uh, criminal and punishable. And what kind of things did you uh, witness uh, here in Detroit that you felt were threatening? I experienced um, a lot. I, I received all kinds of threatening um, phone calls, tech messages, and the like. But it wasn't until um, when I was home because I was uh, recuperating from COVID and quarantine, and I decided to go to uh, take a walk. Uh, the park is three blocks up the street from at the end of my block. So I decided I'd walk up there. And um, this man gets out of the car. He's posted on the corner of my block. And I'm two houses from the corner. And he says, uh, Janice, I've been looking for you. Um, I've been waiting for you at work. So I decided to come to your house. And then he just become coming up to me in a threatening manner. Um, why did you uh, cheat during the election? Why did you allow Trump to lose. You're going to pay for your actions. And I'm telling him, I need you to get out of my face. And I'm backing up and he's walking toward me. He's a big guy. He's walking toward me. And, I, and the only thing I can think of, I had nothing uh, to protect me. The only thing I can think of was to tell him I had COVID and I'll spit on you. And, and that was true. And then he went back and forth. Well, if you got COVID, where's your mask? And da, 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 da. And fortunately for me, a neighbor saw this and she drove up to me. She said, Ms. Winfrey, are you okay? And I told her, absolutely not. This man is threatening me. So things like that. I, I, I should not uh, be a prisoner in my own home. That's terrifying. I had not heard that story before. I'm sorry that you had to go through that. Uh, that is uh, not part of the job description. Uh, at all. <laughs> at all. <laughs> at all. And uh, hopefully, uh, uh, hopefully the police were called and, uh, you know, they're able to figure, figure that out. But uh, they, um, they were and they did. Good. That's. I'm. I'm glad for that. What. Uh, what did uh, Congress uh, want to know from you? Were Were there any surprises? Uh, was it mostly just a fact finding mission? I think it was mostly a fact finding mission. What they wanted to know from me um, is what happened during the the 2020 election and what. How has your life changed? Have you been threatened? Uh, do you feel afraid? Uh, and do I think that. Uh, this is hurting our democracy, and of course it is. Uh, do I think that these things happen as a result of what they termed the big lie by uh, President Trump? And and I just shared with them my story, and I told them, look, I'm a nonpartisan clerk, and as such, I count every ballot. I count every initiative, every vote. My charge is clean, fair election. That's it. 
Michigan's longest-running Senator Carl Levin passed away Thursday evening at the age of 87 after a five-year battle with lung cancer. Levin, a Democrat who served in Congress for 36 years, was a taxi driver before getting into politics and reportedly kept a faded union card in his wallet for decades after he was elected. Rocky Ruskowski, Oakland County Republican chair, ran against Levin for his Senate seat in 2002 and remembers the late senator with Chris Renwick. I got into the race and I got to know this guy named Carl Levin. And I realized that I disagreed with him on almost everything. But when I talked with him, we both found areas that we could find some common ground on. And I found him to be an incredibly patriotic gentleman. He was one of the true believers. He wasn't just in politics to be in politics or to get a paycheck. This guy was the real Cinderella man. And I, I remember it was kind of funny because uh, we were debating, and it was a TV, a televised debate uh, at the Detroit Economic Club. And here I am, a 30-year-old guy, and he's like 66, 68 years old. And I told him, I basically said, Senator, you've been in office since I've been in diapers. And he turned to me and he goes, and I'm going to continue being in office. And we had some good, we had some good laughs. Um, you know, I remember, and and it led to a relationship. So I I eventually lost that race, and uh, we we actually had a cordial relationship. And after I lost that race, I called the senator and and let him know that you know I concede, you actually won fair and square. And he said, you know what, Rocky, you did a great job. I'm I'm. I'm very impressed. Let me give you my cell phone. If you ever need anything, feel free to call me. I got about 90 seconds left here. So he gives you your number, and now you're dealing with, with a couple of soldiers in Egypt. Yeah, a couple airmen that got uh, basically blown up through a terrorist attack. And I get a phone call from a dear friend in Grand Rapids at almost midnight saying, can you help? Because we can't get anywhere. The embassies can't help. And I picked up the phone and called Carl Levin, and it was almost 12.30, 12.45 in the morning. And he picked up the phone, and within 10 hours, they had an Air Force uh, meta-flight meta with Air Force Aviation uh, flight surgeons on board. They got them out of the Egyptian hospital, and these four men, or at least one of them or two of them died. But they got them to Landstuhl Air Force Base, reunited them with them with their families. And one of them was Michael Keel, who later wrote a book about it. So I I got to tell you, Senator Levin, um, although I disagree with him, he he still shares a big portion of my heart of of a gentleman that really showed what it meant to be a public servant. With the news uh, that uh, broke uh, overnight for us yesterday, uh, former U.S. Senator Carl Levin, Michigan's longest-serving senator, has died at the age of 87. And if I'm not mistaken, Marie, one of the first assignments you had as a reporter at WJR was that you were sent out and did an interview kind of on the street. You were on the street. One of your first interviews was with Senator Carl Levin. In fact, Paul, this was prehistoric times. So before WJR, I mean, I was just out of college. Wait a minute. And I, there was no before <laughs> WJR. What are you talking yeah, about? I, I know, right. There was no w, before WJR. Well, indeed it was. I was very, very young, and I got sent out on the street for the first time. I had a really tough news director, a great news director, but a really tough one. And he said, you know, you need to really make sure you, you know, get questions answered. So after this uh 
press event was over with, I, I said, uh, Senator Levin, could I just have a couple minutes with you to talk? And he said, sure. And we were at the press club in Detroit, and he took me over. There was like a little bar there in the press club, and we sat there. And he goes, hey, so what do you want to know? And um, he spent a half hour with me and uh, talked. I don't even remember what the topic was that we were that I was covering that day. I just remember that he spent that kind of time with me, and I ended up getting a really great story that made my news director very happy. So um, I had a, a wonderful. And then through the years, the last time I interviewed him, believe it or not, was on the floor of the convention center uh, in uh, Colorado when Obama was uh, nominated for president the first time and he and his family were sitting there and I, I you know went over and scooched next to him and sat down and he said well how are you and we had another great conversation and uh, that was the last time I officially um, interviewed him as a senator so he was always open to reporters questions there was never a question he wouldn't answer which I really admired he never got prickly about even some pointed questions that we threw his way yeah, he was he was excellent. Like I said at the beginning of the show, we didn't always agree, um, but we were never disagreeable with each other. I think we had a mutual respect, and uh, I, I found him to be a, a very interesting, great guy. Uh, in spite of whatever political differences we might have had, he he wore his 36 years or so in the upper chamber extremely well. And I never doubted for a second that Carl Levin was doing what he thought was best for Michigan and, for that matter, for these United States. Senior News Analyst Marie Osborne with Paul W. Smith. That'll do it for Pod Suey this week. For full interviews or anything else you might have missed, go to thegreatvoice.com. See you next time.